0: Hi, I'm JP. I'm John B.
1: And I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. We're recording this at 241 beats. JP, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? Uh,
0: I don't know if I do have anything to plug. Um, I've been on Topic Lords before, and I enjoy topics. What what more of qualification do I need?
1: <laughs> this isn't a test. It's okay. John B., <laughs> would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug?
2: Uh, I'm also a returning guest. Uh, I'll plug. I believe JP is the proprietor of Capcom versus Everyone on Twitter. Is that correct?
0: Oh, okay, sure, yeah.
2: Yeah, that often gets a chuckle out of me and if I see three or four obscure characters uh, fighting each other via that bot. I, I tweeted out as if to say, "Look, look! I know these characters. Aren't I cool? <laughs>
1: yeah, don't yeah. you
2: want to be cool like me?" <laughs> Nobody ever responds, but I get. I still get joy out of it.
1: JP, have have you changed the algorithm for that bot recently?
0: Early this year I did a big update. I added a bunch of new characters to the corpus and I actually wrote like a whole new tool to like maintain the corpus. Um it's actually it's a manually maintained corpus.
2: I, I need some corpus maintenance. So if yeah. you could get a tool for me that would maintain my corpus, that would be that'd be great. That
1: would be that would be excellent. Yeah.
2: Yeah, there was an announcement that round 1 was complete or something like that.
1: Oh, I missed that. I've just been noticing that it looks a lot more deliberate now. Like the the selections.
2: Yeah, I've noticed that too. Like, yeah, some you know the other day like death from something and death from something else uh, were a team. <laughs> it was like death from the seventh seal right. and death from Castlevania or something like that.
0: Yeah, like early this year, I just. Finally got around to doing something I had wanted to do with that bot, which is making a new tool with which I could easily edit and kind of manage, administrate the the big corpus for that bot. The corpus is just like the database of all the different characters that can exist in it. And one of the things that the new tool let me do was add a tagging feature. So for instance, I can say like, okay, well, all these characters, these characters are all cats. And I can tag all of the characters who are cats or cat people, whatever. You know, the the point isn't like it's it's obviously nothing ever that's ever user visible. It just influences the picking heuristics. And there's a few different things that influence the match generation. Uh, as of this this overhaul that I did to it back in like I don't know January or February of this year, um, characters can sometimes team up based on a common tag. So like two cats or two moms, or two robots, or whatever. They can sometimes team up based on being from the same origin, like two Star Wars characters teaming up, or whatever. Uh, and they can also team up, team up just based on name similarity. So if two characters have similar names, it's aware of that as well. So there's all these things that kind of influence like how teams get constructed now yeah. i got to make a fun little tool that lets me look at the thousands of characters in the corpus so i, I want to do a video on it at some point where i just kind of talk about like the overall philosophy of it and how i implemented everything in it because at this point you know it's it's you know a, a decent amount of work has gone into it yeah
1: yeah i was gonna say when you said it's easy to do these things it's easy but like also a huge amount of work
0: yeah like i i knew that You know, like, my earliest experiments with the bot back in, like, 2015 or so were like, can I just do this with uh, Google image searches or something? Because uh, the bot's, like, primary inspiration was Darius Kazami's uh, alt-universe prompts bot. I actually don't know if I've ever looked at the code or if it's available, but um, that's something where it's just like, oh, yeah, uh, Severus Snape and Anakin Skywalker you know, breaking up or whatever. And I don't know exactly how he gets like the list of names and stuff, but I'm pretty sure that like the image that it constructs to sort of illustrate that are based on Google image searches. The results I was getting when I tried that out weren't very good. And so I was like, okay, well, what can I do instead? And so I just decided to commit to doing like a manual corpus and making a tool that would make it like super easy. Like My goal was for it to take, like, you know, 20 to 30 seconds tops to add a new character so that I can just, like, go down a big list of, like, hundreds of characters and add them, you know, in the course of, like, an hour or two.
1: Yeah, yeah. And where you're, like, going to, like, TV tropes for the list of characters...
0: Well, it's it's more just, like, kind of consulting different areas. You know, I'll remember, like, an old cartoon from the 80s or something or, like, you know, just whatever. And be like, do I know enough about this thing to, like, come up with a good list of characters? It's also not exhaustive either. Like, I don't have every single character from He-Man or... Star Trek or whatever in there. It's more like, you know, what's a potentially funny person to have in a matchup or something? Yeah, There's a lot going on with, with that bot. And uh, yeah, that this I should really do a, that video where I talk all about it sometime. Yeah, I'd love to watch that. I'm glad y'all enjoy it.
2: Yeah, I do. I was just thinking too, uh, on Discord recently, I introduced uh, some people to the Ryu number, the bot that six degrees of separation style connects every video game character who's ever appeared to, to Ryu from Street Fighter.
0: Oh, okay, okay, yeah. All right. So Ryu is the Ke- is the Kevin Bacon of uh, of video games,
2: pretty much, because he's been in so many crossover games, including Smash Brothers and so on.
0: Yeah, being in Smash plugs you into a lot.
2: Obviously, the same kind of source of inspiration as that bot. I wonder if there might be some way to uh, cross over there.
1: The the Ryu number is you have to be a character in a game alongside another character. Is that the idea? Yes. Yeah. Just this character has appeared.
2: And they set up some other arbitrary rules, too, about, you know, the duration of appearance. Like, it has to be permanent. It can't be like a Fortnite event. <laughs> that was the oh. other thing. But, you know, Dracula and Castlevania and Dracula used in other media since he's public domain. Sometimes that counts as the same
0: Dracula.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Sherlock Holmes. Right. Yeah, that's true.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you can connect Phoenix Wright, Great Mouse Detective, (laughs) Loop in the Third, etc. Yeah. Yeah, those public domain characters probably do end up being like big nexuses, because you also got Star Trek The Next
1: Generation.
2: Yeah, public domain and historical figures as well. I guess that counts under public domain,
1: but yeah. Right. I like the idea that there are going to be regular human people, like Gary Busey was in Hitman 2. As a, but that was as in a timed <laughs> event, so that doesn't count.
0: Right. Was he playing a character, or was he just Gary Busey? Well, he was... Parentheses, you can kill him.
1: He, he was written <laughs> as an exaggerated version of his persona.
0: Oh, okay, yeah. Man, that's a gig. I can play
1: myself. Yeah, the elusive targets, so, right? I don't know, yeah.
2: yeah, since I plug JPs, I'll use the rest of the plug time. A uh, podcast I listened to about the show The Shield uh, recently ended. They've they've watched, they've recapped all the episodes, and they're recording their big finale, or they've recorded their big finale show as of this week. They're entering, that's called the the Shattered Shield podcast, at Shield Shattered on Twitter, link to listen to the show. One of my friends who was on a previous podcast, I plugged the OST party, kind of benevolently bullied her way onto the show, uh, like I did here, <laughs> after <laughs> some time. So that's a real good listen. The show itself is really great. Uh, I watched it over the summer. That's part of how I spent my time this year. And partly just to listen to the show and catch up with their show. So yeah, Shattered Shield Podcast, at Shattered on Twitter.com. And I also plug the editor of the show, Esper Quinn, because I want to sound good in the edit. Wink.
1: <laughs> wait, wait, is Esper also editing the Shield Shattered?
2: I, I don't know anything else Esper does, but in listening to this show, this is my first time on since they took the job. And yeah. I haven't noticed really any change one way or the better. So mission accomplished. That's
1: great. Yeah, no, that's that's high praise. That's uh, we actually had uh, quite a bit of back and forth about how to match my editing style, and yeah, I agree. It's been it's been great.
2: Fantastic. Yeah, I'm glad that frees up some time on your end.
1: Yeah, it's it's helped a lot. Are we ready to start on some topics? Yes. Uh, JP, your topic is showing Akira to someone who has never seen any anime before and telling them this is what all anime is like. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so I I think I added this one to the bucket a long time ago, but uh, a little backstory on this one, Um, not counting imports like, you know, Thundercats and Speed Racer and things like that. The first time I was like kind of aware of and actually exposed to anime would have been like sometime in the mid-90s. I want to say like 94, 95. I was in high school. I'm dating myself there. And the sci-fi channel in its pretty early days, uh, back when it had like the little Saturn Logo had a thing called Saturday Night Anime, where they would like on at like eleven p m or something, Central time on Saturday nights, they would just like show an anime feature film. And I want to say that the very first one was Vampire Hunter D. Um, and I remember going to school the following Monday and talking to like, you know, a couple of my nerd friends about, like, man, did you see that like Japanese cartoon movie? but but the second one was definitely Akira. and, I found it pretty mind-expanding, you know? You know, being in high school and being exposed to, like, some culture and stuff, but, like, Akira Akira gets into some pretty wild stuff as far as, like, complexity of its setting and some of, like, the sort of social and technological ideas and, like, the sophistication. Of, I mean, it is still an absolutely landmark piece of animation, mm-hmm. you know, just technically just incredible. And then, yeah, just, like, the sort of, like, degree of, like, horror that that comes in, like, late in the film, you know, and the fact that, like the the way that it ends is with, like, this profound, like, apocalyptic event. Um, I remember just being, just, I don't know, like, I, I don't remember exactly what it felt like watching the credits roll in that movie, but it was, like... Wow. And thinking back as as an adult, you know, like I've I've probably rewatched Akira, like, I don't know, maybe three or four times, you know, in in like the 20 years or whatever since then. And just thinking like, man, that's a heck of a thing to just like, you know, and it and it does kind of stand apart. Like there are plenty of like, you know, highly accomplished like action animes with like gritty settings and weird violence and, you know, like body horror and all that kind of stuff. But like it still kind of stands apart from a lot of animated films, just in the way that a lot of classics do, where it's just like this singular thing. Yeah. Anyway, I like the idea of like if that had been my very first and not just my second <laughs> ever anime that I had seen, and I had just walked away from that thinking like, okay, like, yeah, is this just what Japanese animation is? Is this just like is this what's going on here?
1: Well, I think it was a lot of people's first anime movie. I think you could make the argument that Akira was the movie that made Western culture, like sit up and pay attention. Like we need to be paying attention to anime right now because there's something here.
2: Yeah. I know Roger Ebert was an early fan and proponent of it. So it makes sense that it would achieve a kind of widespread along with uh, My Neighbor Totoro,
0: especially. Yeah. Miyazaki stuff also kind of like crossed over successfully and all
1: that. Right, right. Um, And it's the same phenomenon of like, you know, there's a radio single and you're like, oh man, if the whole album's like that, then I'm, I'm definitely going to love it. And of course it never <laughs> is, but that's, that's how they get you. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Cause I remember like in the, in the months that followed video stores were a thing in the nineties. And yeah, we would like go there and like check out their anime section and be like, yeah, what, what else is, what else is going on in this space? You know, it was like a mixed bag, you know, we'd get like, okay, Macross plus uh, dominion tank police, Grappler, Baki, just what, you know, and it's just like a total crapshoot, you know, like, like half of it is just like, you know, sort of political cyberpunk (laughs) C-SPAN and other things are like, okay, this is just like kind of cat girls and violent bazooka fights and whatever, you know, like it's, it's, it's such a, it's such a mixed bag, you know, and it's both in terms of quality and in terms of like the subject matter and overall aesthetic and tone. So it's obviously not all Akira and even just, like, aside from, you know, like, even if Akira hadn't been a classic, if it had just been, like, this this bizarre cult film or something, the process of extrapolating from a single work what an entire, like, creative sphere or even an entire creative medium is like, which is bound to be inaccurate but it's kind of hilarious where you're like you hear exactly one song like you've you've never heard recorded music before and you hear like you know a day in the life by the beatles or <laughs> the vengabus song or whatever and you're like okay this is what recorded music is like this is what's going on here okay i'm 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 eager to hear more
1: people are into some pretty wild stuff here getting a lot of vengabus vibes from this
2: <laughs> akira likes to party i don't know <laughs>
1: Uh two things. One is that this is an aside, but I got Macross and Picross confused for like a decade.
2: <laughs> <laughs> there might be Macross Picross.
0: That wouldn't surprise me. 3D Macross, Color Macross, yeah. uh Mario Macross <laughs> for the Super Nintendo. Uh
1: yeah. The other thing that comes to mind, this is just an example, and it's not it's not a great example anymore because roguelikes have gone on to be a bunch of weird stuff, but we're talking like pre-the-indie roguelike renaissance here. Roguelikes became a thing, you know, in in Western culture, but they also became a thing in Japan and they did it through this, such a narrow funnel, Mm -hmm. like a developer in Japan played rogue and then made Mystery Dungeon, I think is what it was. And then Mm -hmm. the whole genre Mm -hmm. flowered out from Mystery Dungeon. So they were all based on this one inspiration that was a, a weird mirror of this one Western game that nobody actually played over there unless they were like deliberately going back to the roots. And so you have two completely separate branches of evolution.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's an evolutionary bottleneck. You know, it's like when when there's a big extinction event and like only only a couple of species survive and then everything else branches off of that. And so you get these just like really weird divergences and stuff. Yeah.
2: You could find a uh, worse example of anime to say this is what all anime are like. Akira really does. I mean, obviously, lots of things were inspired by it. You know, so there there are a lot of uh, anime series and video games and even other Japanese media which have that kind of uh, arc to it where you kind of, you have this kind of mind expanding and or somewhat depressing ending. And that's not unknown in like Western yeah, media, like film yeah. noir, a lot of the time will have downer endings. Or whatever, but it is yeah. pretty uncommon.
0: Yeah, like it's a different enough storytelling sensibility, I think, in a lot of ways.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of pandering anime, but aside from that, the only real disappointment I think you would get with saying this is what all anime is like is uh, the lip syncing because they actually lip synced in Akira. They did the performances oh, right. first yeah. and animated to sync, and that's mm-hmm. that's really uncommon. But that's because Otomo is just wild and will do that sort of thing. Yeah, like I watched the movie Steamboy, and it's not it's not as like great as Akira, but it's that same attention to craftsmanship is definitely there. Yeah.
1: That's interesting. I didn't know that about about anime that it so they do the animation first and then they have the actors try to match the the mouth movements. Yeah. So they write the dialogue first?
2: They might also record dialogue but not as much attention is paid to the to the lip sync.
1: Yeah. Right.
0: Steiger was rewatching this recently. Um, uh, Only yesterday, the the Ghibli film that was directed by Iseo Takahata. It's it's a really lovely film about like it's sort of uh, it's in the present with this woman who's like kind of reevaluating her life, and then it, it, it has a lot of flashbacks to her childhood, like which I guess would be back in the '60s. The the sort of present day parts of that are also lip synced, and th- what it lets them do with acting, with just like the actual animation acting and stuff, it's really I don't know it just has so much human texture and warmth to it like it's, it's nice you know like it's it's one of those things where they made a production decision that obviously had a really big impact on how they, they made the film but you know it, it was for a specific creative reason that I think really paid off yeah but yeah. most anime is like very assembly line even some really impressive stuff yeah, I, would, you know? I
1: would even expect that from like a TV series if it's created on a budget Well, like a Miyazaki movie would do you think that would be uh, that would be animation first
0: You know, I'm not sure, actually. You can probably just look at, like, you know, the character's mouths moving and...
2: Also, as for uh, Akira being every anime, I I did post something in the chat, which we'll probably put in the show notes, (laughs) about the the Akira bike slide tribute and how many times that famous image has been referenced across all sorts of animation.
1: Yeah. Is this like the, the Japanese version of the sliding across the floor in your socks? from Risky Business.
0: Homages to it are way more widespread than I cuz yeah, I mean I've definitely seen films like reference uh what is it, Tom Cruise in Risky Business. But like yeah, the bike slide, I mean if you if yeah, if you watch like all of the citations in the bike slide tribute video, then it's, yeah, there's, it's
1: truly ridiculous. There's a ton of stuff in here.
0: Animators just cannot resist. They they just it's have a great to shot. they love it so much. Yeah, it's a yeah, it's an amazing shot and then everybody wants a piece of it. Yep. <laughs> It's kind, of, it's, it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of a Wilhelm scream at this point. Like, once something becomes widely cited enough, it starts to be, you know, you never want to be like the the person doing an homage or an Easter egg or whatever. That is, that's the one that makes everybody start rolling their eyes at it.
1: <laughs> you do it, but then you make it into a joke too.
0: Yeah. And some of those bike slides are definitely like, isn't this a completely ridiculous context in which to invoke the Akira bike slide? Right. And yes, like, Sure. When it's when it's just funny, you know, and honestly, like the the Wilhelm scream has has sort of ranged over its lifetime from like serious like war movie, you know, just guy, you know, plummeting to his death or whatever, versus like, we know that the Wilhelm scream is a ridiculous piece of audio that came out of a human's mouth. One one day in the 1950s, (laughs) we're going to make that a goofy wave that you listen to
1: over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, are you ready for another topic? Sure. I think so. John, your topic is Bizarro, Dan Hibiki, Hamsar, and other not quite doppelgangers slash parodies who exist in the same world as their progenitors.
2: Yeah. So I don't I don't know if there's enough here to be its own category, but this kind of doppelganger concept, they're not really evil. They're just what's the politically correct way to say? They're just kind of wrong copies of the main characters or whatever, and their respective Right. I don't know if there's an earlier one, but Bizarro is the earliest one I can think of being just the really wacky Superman. Yeah. (laughs) He has a bizarre speech pattern where everything is the negative of what it's supposed to be. (laughs) So like have, have a horrible day and things like that. And of course it gets convoluted with lots of double negatives and things like that. And then other authors take him and do all sorts of even stranger things.
1: Yeah. What's Dan Hibiki from?
2: Dan Hibiki is the Street Fighter character who is a long-running uh, in-joke. Well, it's not much of an in-joke. It's really more of a on-its-sleeve joke. <laughs> um, so when Street Fighter came out, there were a lot of games that followed in its wake, obviously. And one of them was Art of Fighting from SNK. And the main character of that is Ryo, rather than Ryu. And he's a similar kind of generic karate guy with similar moves. So Dan Hibiki in the Street Fighter Alpha series uh, came about as a parody of Ryo. So he's like Ken and Ryu, except he's worse. So Ryo in uh, Art of Fighting throws a one-handed fireball. So Dan throws one, but in most of the games, it only extends like about a hand's length in front of him.
1: Yeah, it's just pitiful rain. Right. it's still pretty impressive. Like if I could throw a fireball like a foot in front of me, I'd be really happy with that.
2: If he were in Virtua Fighter, he'd be top tier. Yeah. And a lot of his uh, dialogue and... Move references and things like that are also references to other SNK games. So, so his canon story is that he's entering the tournament to partially to get revenge on uh, his father's death. His dad was killed by Sagat, and later on, there's opportunities for his dad to appear, like either as in spirit form or other ways. And he's wearing a Tengu mask. Well, that's a reference to Art of Fighting, where spoilers for Art of Fighting, <laughs> which has been spoiled by like every King of Fighters game since uh, the boss of that game missed. Mr. Karate, who wears a Tengu mask, is Ryo's dad,
0: Mm -hmm, actually. mm -hmm.
2: So there's a long-running thing with that, and parodies and endings. Uh, There's an ending in Marvel Super Heroes vs. Street Fighter, where Dan's ending is a direct parody of Ryo's ending, finding out his father's identity from his sister Yuri in that game, featuring Dan's sister, who's just this random character who's never seen again, because that ending is in a crossover game and not meant to (laughs) be any forward continuity. And it just goes back and forth like that. And then uh, later on, SNK is in on the joke, and there are, of course, crossover games between Capcom and SNK, and SNK gets to have fun with Dan, and Capcom gets directly to have fun with Ryo and have special intros between them. Anyway, that's that's kind of besides the point. He's shitty Ryu. He's shitty Ryu and Ken. He wears a pink outfit, which is kind of like haha, ha, but it's also a combination of red and white, which are the outfits that Ken and Ryu wear. And then Homesar uh the result of an early typo in... The second strong bad email, I think it was maybe even the first. <laughs> Can't remember. <laughs> uh, which is a misspelling of Homestar. So naturally, the way the Homestar Runner universe works, Homestar Runner being the Flash cartoon series, it's now twenty years old. Fantastic. Uh, we're all gonna die. Wow. <laughs> the way they tend to latch onto things in those emails and create a whole lore out of whatever people suggested. Uh, he was created from a typo, and because he's a typo, he's he's a misshapen, wrong version of Homestar Runner. Yeah and he has a lot of nonsense dialogue and pop culture references and things like that and shows up as often shows up as an easter egg in other cartoons or because they were big on doing easter eggs with the flash format and all that usually in the halloween episodes especially he would he would be a hidden a hidden character with his own costume Bizarro's is the earliest one i can think of i don't know if there's like an antecedent in literature like the idea of the doppelganger has obviously been around a while but there are these they're not evil twins they're just wrong they're Bad.
1: <laughs> yeah the the example that comes to mind for me it's not quite the right example but maybe that's appropriate uh is uh ng resonance from deus ex invisible war
0: <laughs> <laughs> who showed up on on capcom versus everyone uh, recently i believe
1: yeah yeah i saw that and I, i'm hoping you have both versions like one good and one evil <laughs> uh so ng resonance is a pop star in that world like clearly modeled after Britney Spears because that game was made in what, 2001 or something like that? came out in late 2003, I believe. Okay. Yeah. There are kiosks all over the game world where you can speak to a hologram AI NG resonance. And she says that she tailors herself to uh, each user. So the way she talks to you is she like asks you to spy on people I think she's the one who gives you the mission to, like, steal the alien corpse out of the basement of the nightclub or something like that. <laughs> or, like, get a body scan of it and re- re- return with the data. Good, good things that are in Deus 2. Yeah. Right. And is very, like, politically astute. And then you meet, like, late in the game, you meet the actual NG Resonance and she's just an asshole.
0: Yeah, she's kind of like a just a stuck up, like, I'm way too good for everyone here, kind of celebrity person. Yeah,
1: right, right. You get you get little snippets of like how she talks to other people as well. Like there's a a character who is clearly like in love with the hologram, or at least has a crush and is asking questions like, do you ever meet your uh, users in real life or whatever it was? And she just gives this non-committal answers like, "Sure, I love meeting my fans." The wrong version in this case is the real one, It's because <laughs> you've been introduced to this politically aware mission giving ng resonance in for the for the vast majority of the game.
0: Yeah, the sort of generally savvy and helpful version, who is actually a projection of an AI, right?
1: Yeah, run by the WTO.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's kind of, that's almost like a man behind the curtain kind of situation where like there's this fantasy of a character that's being created deliberately as, as a deception. But then there's like a real person who's either unremarkable or shitty or whatever.
1: It's not even a deception because you find out in the first conversation, this is an AI.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Right. Yeah. The artifice of it is, you know, such as the post post modernism or whatever of the setting that it's like, okay, well people know that they're having a weird parasocial relationship with a hologram of a celebrity, <laughs> right. but right. but they don't care because they live in a world where Greys were engineered by the government and nanobots give people superpowers. Right. So, you know, it's 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 low on the scale of, of goofy stuff happening.
1: That's true, yeah. It's a, one of the least implausible parts of that game.
0: There's the straight-up evil twin version, you know, the evil Captain Kirk from the Mirror Universe. There's, like, the kind of, like, deliberately offered copy. There's the sort of deceptive off-brand version, you know? Like, sometimes there'll be, like... I don't know, like shows with ensemble casts sometimes will like meet. Right. You know, they'll meet like a version of their team, like like the evil Scooby-Doo gang in the Mystery Mobile, right. you know?
2: Or Shelbyville.
0: Yeah, ex- <laughs> right. Yeah, the Shelbyville thing. <laughs> and they're either taking advantage of a mistaken identity thing or they're just like completely oblivious and they think that they're the real or, and or the beloved talented ones and that, the, and that our heroes that we know so well are, are just these weird knockoffs or something. Yeah, all of these are separate things from the bad copy thing. Yeah, Yeah.
2: that's pretty similar, though. That reminded me of another one, which was uh, in the movie Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. The whole first half of the movie, it's basically divided into two halves. And the first half is an investigation with new characters, but they go to a town that is like a bad version of Twin Peaks, where everybody's just an asshole. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. And Twin Peaks has like that whole like dualism you know, like there's just all of these like little echoes of the same kind of themes. You know, right. and obviously, like you know, Cooper having an entire doppelganger, you know, self, and just you know, every like a lot of characters having you know either dark halves or evil twins or whatever. Yeah. Like it's, I think that's one of those situations where like repetition just ends up creating resonances just by by sheer determination.
2: Right. But yeah, definitely in the movie, it was a very deliberate deliberate comedic invention.
1: It's definitely a trope. I I don't know what you would call it, but like the idea of like the people in the mirror escaping. Right. Yeah. That sort of thing. And I'm I'm I'm, trying to think of like three or four stories that have used that trope. And I don't want to tell you what they are because every single one of them, one of the twists at the end is that the protagonist turns (laughs) out to have been one of them all along or whatever, like. Or a, one of the major characters, it, which is great. A great twist. Like, I don't mind it. Like, every time it's great. It's sort of playing on, like, you know, when – yeah,
0: when you think about a copy of you from the mirror coming out and, like, pretending to be you or – the copies are always, like, they're, they're lesser people, you know, usually. that I mean, that's – and that's what can be problematic about the trope. But, right. like, they're less fully developed. Like, maybe only a tiny, weird little scrap of you is what gets carved off to, to, to create this clone homunculus sort of <laughs> – thing or whatever yeah
2: this is just like a left-handed homunculus yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know you can turn that on its ear and be like oh no actually what if you're the less dimensional other uh to this that makes our assumptions about what constitutes a fully developed person or identity you know just you know it topsy-turvy
1: yeah
2: yeah bizarro was the, always the, the earliest one i could think of especially along this comedic kind of line i guess that's really the difference these are like comedy doppelgangers That's probably the best way to put
0: it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And those can, those are often pretty wholesome, you know, like it's, they're, they're just a way to like poke fun. I mean, with Superman, you know, who's like a serious, just, just pure lawful good sort of upstanding guy having like a weird, gross, (laughs) dumb version of the guy is like, you know, just sort of enjoyable, you know, especially if you make him powerful in some weird way. Yeah.
2: And i related to that though like one of the hardest things i've ever laughed at something on the internet that i wasn't expecting was looking up bizarro and discovering that batman also has a bat Zarro in a certain (laughs) comic and i'm reading the description and like his backstory is he calls himself the world's worst detective which is funny and then his backstory is that he killed his own parents and is trying to solve the murder oh god (laughs) and like (laughs) right yeah yeah. wait wait uh,
1: is this actually a character or is this a tweet that someone made? And
2: This is a character. Oh, look, it's comics. <laughs>
1: okay. Yeah. You
2: shouldn't be surprised that it's it actually exists. Yeah, I don't know what era
0: this is from, but like if you read some Golden Age and Silver Age like summaries, it's like, these are just shit posts. These people were waiting around <laughs> for for comedy in name posting on the internet to be invented, so they made a comic about bat or whatever instead. It could also be a more modern thing, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs>
2: But there was just something extra hilarious about reading it in, you know, the Wikipedia prose. Like it's just a it's just a description of what the character is and
1: neutral point of view makes everything funnier.
0: <laughs> There's also like the just conceptual inverse, like a reverse vampire or the reverse ninja turtles or whatever.
2: So yeah, I like those characters. I'm I'm drawn to them for some reason. It's it's just hilarious to invert everything.
1: Are we ready for another topic?
2: Yeah. I think so.
1: Well, my topic is the Tankachi editor. I'm going to put this in the show notes. I found out about this in uh, an episode of the Video Game History Foundation podcast where the author of this post, which I'm linking to, talks about the history of Mario modding and Kaizo Mario specifically. And the thing that really shocked me about the history was that Super Mario Brothers mods started happening in, in 1987 with the Famicom, where someone released an unlicensed, it was a Famicom disc that just had a hex editor on it where you could load up the contents of a Famicom disk, make changes to them by entering hex values and write them back to the disk. So you could, with this, make mods. And the reason this was usable at all was that it came with this enormous manual that included, like, here's the 6502 assembly language. Here's how to write a program in it. Damn. Here's, like, the the layout, the memory layout of the Super Mario Brothers ROM. Here's the level format and that sort of thing. That's gold. Yeah. And people actually made mods with this by planning them out on graph paper and then laboriously typing in hex codes into the uh into the editor, which is just incredible to me.
0: Yeah, that's serious. That makes that makes doing Doom mods in a DOS level editor seem like, yeah, a cakewalk. Right.
2: I can barely do anything in Mario Maker.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: to be fair it's Mario Maker 2 which the interface was a uh,
1: Yeah yeah you don't have the touch screen anymore
2: I mean you do sort of but they have to rework the controls to to assume that you have it plugged into the TV Right so Yeah yeah I mean I'm not very creative with that stuff anyway <laughs> so yeah this is mind blowing it is it is wild to think think of it on the Famicom because especially here we just had the NES with cartridges and there's that's completely closed as far as
1: yeah, you know, like the kid- closest thing we got was the Game Genie, right? Which allows you to change three bytes in the ROM, mm-hmm.
2: and yet that seemed like absolute magic.
0: Even that, I think, was you know the awakening of of some uh, of some some game developers and hackers and tinkerers and stuff, you know, because like if you if you could figure out what the logic behind a given code was or something, you know, even yeah. that was. But obviously, yeah, not nearly as full-featured as just being able to actually write.
1: They did the opposite of giving you a manual with the layout of Super Mario Brothers, which was that they actually obfuscated the meaning of the... Right. I was That's always true. curious yeah.
2: about how those letters mapped to whatever you were doing.
1: Yeah, in a convoluted way yeah. is the answer.
2: Of course. They ran it through the Enigma first, and then...
0: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah, which is a bummer because, yeah, like, you know, they wouldn't have needed to really obfuscate it.
1: I'm actually not sure what the intent was other than maybe to make it feel like more like an incantation.
0: I mean honestly like you know when i think of like game you know console game magazines of that era they they always had a section in the back or whatever that had like game genie codes right
1: yeah and later yeah.
0: game
2: shark and stuff i don't know
0: if there was like some some sort of collusion i forget if nintendo power or any of the first party magazines no, did that but there like... was a
2: lawsuit it was it was a landmark yeah, c- yeah. A landmark case in ip law
0: yeah yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, it had to have pissed Nintendo off cuz they were so protectionist about things, you know, cuz they were coming in and rewriting the rules for the for the console market.
1: Yeah, it might have been DRM. Like as as a kid like just faced with this interface, you're so far away from being able to create useful cheat codes with it that I don't think they needed to, needed to add that extra step, but like, maybe they wanted yeah. to make it slightly harder for competitors to sell books full of cheat codes.
2: That makes some sense, yeah. Yeah. Also, by obfuscating it, they might have made it uh, less close to the actual program that in the games itself, like you weren't... The whole thing with the, ca- the case, as I understand it, is it hinged on the idea that by entering the codes, you were creating a derivative work.
0: Huh. Oh my gosh, that's right. Right,
2: yeah, yeah that... W- that was the crux of the argument, right? So I don't know if they anticipated any sort of court fight or whatever in the development of it. The device was from Codemasters, who were right, their British company, yeah. and published in Canada and then the U.S. by Galoob. But yeah, that was that was the argument from Nintendo: is you were creating derivative works, and like eventually the judge found since it only existed in RAM, it wasn't likely Nintendo was going to sell versions of Super Mario Brothers with infinite lives or whatever as a separate product, or even like as an add-on or what have you that there really was no case there.
1: Yeah, that's interesting.
2: Kind of funny with Switch online now when you have the the save state versions of the games with like all the items and stuff replacing you at the end of the game.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I love how they they paint those as like it's it's as if it's a rom hack when it's just like loading a game state.
2: Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, just the year that it came out, that's pretty pretty wild. Yeah,
1: 87. Pretty pretty incredible. It makes me think of like Conlan Nancaro like hand carving piano rolls to make weird art music.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, really getting into leads. I guess, you know, you have the advantage you're focusing on one game. so Right, yeah. It, it's it's definitely doable.
0: It kind of turns the game that you're doing that to into just a full genre, you know? Yeah. And your means of modifying it is so limited, you know, and you do have exhaustive information on it. It, it. it kind of creates this creative space to think in of like, okay, what can I, how many bytes can I change from Mario and, and have something fun you know it's yeah like
1: and then have it still be interesting as a result bottom
0: up kind of creative exploration
1: i spent a bunch of time as a kid generating. i wrote a q basic program to generate random game genie codes and i remember entering them into uh various video games and then seeing what happened and super mario brothers was really the only one that ever gave interesting yeah not it wasn't even consistently interesting but like as close to consistently interesting as was meaningful Results, and I think a lot of this was just that that game is so compact. It doesn't have a mapper, so it's it's tr- it's truly like a 32k of code game, like and that's it. Yeah, and so changing any given byte in the program is likely to have interesting results.
0: Yeah, you're probably what you're what you're changing is probably actual game state and or, or logic and not
1: sort of the sophisticated
0: infrastructure that more complex games that came later would have added to like manage the larger amounts of like content or yeah, yeah, more complicated logic or something.
1: Yeah, yeah. Or like in, in if you have a tiny game, you have to have a bunch of code doing a lot of different things like the enemy, enemy AI is probably all using the same routine. For example, if you have more space to play with, you're not going to do that. You're going to have them each be interestingly different. You're, you're less likely to see the results of any random change.
2: A lot of the, uh, you know, kind of homebrew stuff that, and they gave you suggestions for this in the manual for the Game Genie, but you would take the codes that they gave you and you could play around with those. So usually the easiest thing they gave, and they gave you an explicit example how to do this, is anything that modified a number that was just like a counter of some kind. If you change the first and last characters in the code, you could affect that in some way. So the Mm. code that said, give me nine lives, you could change it to 99 very easily just by using the more intense character, the one they said was more, right? So like you change it from one to eight or something like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There were some parts of that logic that were scrutable.
1: Yeah.
2: Right. Yeah. And they told you specifically where in the code, you know, where things tended to to change in a certain way. So I remember doing that with a property that was non-numeric, which was the codes to let you keep the suits in Super Mario 3. Very fantastic Mm. code to have as a kid, especially for that Hammer Brother suit. I modified it in some way, and I got the weirdest effect I've ever seen, which was that Mario was permanently small. So rather than have the Hammer Brother suit, he was permanently small. He was invincible. The sprite was in black and white, but detrimentally, you could not enter pipes. And that makes the (laughs) game impossible to finish, because to exit some levels, you have to go into a pipe to get to the final screen. But that was just, by modifying that one code, that was the most bizarre effect I'd seen from that.
0: That almost sounds like a debug player state. Huh. Yeah, maybe. That could be possible. Like like if you were just going to test out a single level. Yeah. And you can run around Invincible. And that's a, that's a wild guess. It's
2: weird that just by modifying, you know, those two characters, I was able to get all three of those. It's possible, yeah, that it activates some early code. I know in the game Gun Act, I've activated uh, the debug mode just by, like, seeding the cartridge in a certain way or something.
0: <laughs> this is making me wonder if, um, you know, t- talking about, like, the relationship between... Just overall game complexity and how generative and easy like interesting hacks are you know super Mario versus others this makes me wonder if if a twenty six hundred emulator I no we lost jim uh, I think we should wait for him to that might be good rejoin
2: all right a reminder in case we lose our train of thought here twenty six hundred we could also just talk about garbage and see if it makes it into the show. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm looking up the meanings, the various translations of kaizo, and they actually all seem pretty pretty straightforward Jim's I'm back hey jim have you been right. have you been talking while I was gone? tiny bit I think we were yeah, we were scrupulously avoiding burning cast as as they say um, <laughs> okay, well, we can work with that.
2: Burning cast sounds like an obscure p s one fishing game
0: <laughs> burning cast no, yeah, that's true, yeah the Special fishing techniques. No, Burning Cast is just what the uh, Idle Thumbs guys would call. Uh, and the first time I was on that show, we did we did the hell out of it. Uh, like, after we finished recording the podcast, we just continued with this rolling, like, two-hour discussion of all kinds of video games. And, like... A lot of what we talked about was like more interesting than anything that we discussed in the actual episode. And <laughs> yeah. It was just sort of like, oh crap, I wish we had just kept recording or something. Anyway, yeah, I was, I forget where, when you dropped out, Jim, but um, I, I was wondering like, you know, given that the, that, the, that the Atari 2600 is like, you know, like an order of magnitude simpler even than the NES and that games, you know, you had so little to work with and it was you know, pretty much all game state in, in one, if you just change random bits there, if that is actually very likely to give you something cool and interesting, or if it's just, if it just breaks because this chair already had three legs and now you've kicked out one of them and yeah. it's just no longer viable.
2: Yeah, it seems like a real house of cards. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, some of my favorite results were like when you'd start playing this game and like reality would start breaking down in front of you, Totally. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I know that the 2600, like, you know, the, the amount of time that like you had CPU time at the edges, like past the edges of the display where the system's processor had some cycles while you were waiting for the uh, the CRT beam to wrap back around and start the next line. If you did anything to offset that, you would probably just start seeing the computational work just rep- like getting dumped into the frame buffer or something. <laughs>
2: I guess the really ancient version of this, at least (laughs) of a consumer home video game, would be, like, modifying Pong to change the size of things. Was the home Pong a purely analog thing?
0: I think, like, the very first versions of it were...
1: Yeah, I think it was all discrete circuitry, so you'd be doing, like, circuit bending.
2: Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole episode of That 70s Show that That... got a subplot about that.
1: Yeah, that could be super interesting, too.
2: Kaizo Pong.
1: Uh, Are we ready for another topic? Sure. Yep. So, for this topic, we're going to be reading There Was an Old Man of St. Bees by W.S. Gilbert and trying to figure out what it means. I can't I can't load it because I don't have internet.
2: Oh, you want me to read the poem then?
1: Yeah, you, you go ahead. You read it.
2: Okay. Uh, so, this is almost a limerick, but not quite. There was an old man of St. Bees. was stung in the arm by a wasp. When asked, does it hurt? He replied, no, it doesn't. But I thought all the while twas a hornet. I read the last line when I already said I prefer the alternate last line. I'm so glad it wasn't a Hornet. It's
1: puzzling. I, th- I like this one. I think it's funny. I think it's a good joke. I like it when things look like they should rhyme but don't.
2: Yeah. It still has that lyrical quality in the rhythm, and enough sounds are kind of the same, like the last several lines end in T, so you get that, but they don't rhyme. That's the thought. Am I Sorry,
1: I, I, I'm, you're, I'm getting some of that packet-loss JP described.
2: JP, are you on?
0: Hmm? Just checking. Uh, yeah, I'm here. Just
2: checking. There <laughs> yeah, was a long yeah. silence. I want to make sure <laughs> we
1: we're all still there's here. There's ongoing technical difficulties. Yeah, yeah. All right, I'm going to try switching back to my regular internet. See if it's back.
2: Okay, dokie. Let me see if I can find the book. First encountered this poem. Don't know if I have it nearby at the moment. I don't think I do. Too many books. Have you ever seen the film Robot Carnival?
0: Uh, that sounds familiar.
2: It it's an anime anthology film. Otomo directed it.
0: Oh, that's right. Yeah, I probably saw it like twenty years, like over twenty years yeah. ago in 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 art school. I think.
2: Right on. Yeah, I I finally saw it recently for the first time. It was really good. They've thrown up a lot of anime on 2B, yeah. including that. They have a deal with like Disco Tech and some others, hmm. so that one's on there. Cool. Golgo Thirteen: The Professional. I just watched recently.
1: Hmm. Yeah. So this is just a cursed episode of Topic Lords apparently.
0: My bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's raining here in San Francisco, so uh. I don't know if that's uh I mean I I think my internet has been okay the whole time. Like I I as far as just like actual connection. If we
1: technology. each say something interesting about the poem, it doesn't matter if we can understand each other. It'll just all get edited <laughs> right. together We're- into three separate interesting things.
0: Let's each send a message in a bottle. We all
2: have an original point of view.
0: I'm just going to say it. I actually don't get the joke here. Like, I've read it a few times now, and it's not, I don't know, like, yeah, I, I think I have just overthought it officially.
2: I guess I got it, and then Jim got it when I sent it to him, so. You kind of already explained it, Jim. Do you want to explain the joke again, or should I?
1: I think the joke is that it seems like it should rhyme, but doesn't. Like, Andrew Plotkin had a tarot deck called the Uncarrot Tarot, and if you look at it spelled out, the two words both end with O-T, so they look like they should rhyme, uh, but they don't rhyme when you say them out uh, loud. okay. Yeah, I get getcha.
2: I have a username or two that's like that, for that same effect. Listeners,
0: feel free to dox me. <laughs> Seeing it in print is really, like, a key part of the, the joke's impact, huh?
1: In the case of the Uncarrot Tarot, yes, but in this case, I think listening to it out loud... like. It takes the form of a limerick.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Limericks have a specific rhyme scheme, and it doesn't adhere to any of it. Yeah, like the syllable count.
2: Yeah, the meter is all the same. Like, you, you read it out, and it is. But right from the second line, was stung in the arm by a wasp. You've violated everything, because... Right, exactly. The right... Yeah. And yeah. You also have this... Fic- I, is There is a place called St. B's? That sounds certainly like a fictional town. So you set up that dichotomy, too, which is... You, you end the first line with bees, and the next one is about being stung by a wasp. So you have that nice confluence of a joke. You're on and off foot for the rest of it, so that
0: right, exactly. Even though it's
2: so short, you get to the end, especially at the end. You get these three these three lines that are almost rhymes. You get hurt does when asked, "Does it hurt?" He replied, "No, it doesn't." I'm so glad it wasn't a hornet. The la- doesn't and hornet are so close, but still off. They're still wrong from each other.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's sort of the wrong copy, but for a. A classic format, right? Exactly. Of, it of
2: is. It's very much that same kind of impulse.
0: And yeah, like those three, like you know, near rhymes are kind of like uh, they're kind of like clashing colors, you know, where you're not taking the complementary opposite of a color and of two colors and putting them right next to one another because those are just that usually just looks like really garish, you know, like it it, it it's a de- it's deliberate dissonance. Uh-huh. Whereas when you have two colors that are like just have nothing to do with one another practically they have a big difference in saturation or they're just from like exactly the right interval on the hue wheel or something then like, you know, it does, it it can like those kinds of color combinations can be really jarring, you know, because they have that like kind of uncanniness, I guess.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I first encountered this bit of verse in uh, Douglas Hofstadter's Metamagical Themas. Mm. But the, the collected book version of the column he did for Scientific American, because he started that column before I was born. So I was, came to it much later. But it's very much up his kind of alley about thinking about language and meaning. And I forget which chapter exactly it was in. Like the beginning of the book is starts with this kind of stuff. There's a whole section on nonsense, which has some, some other delightful examples. It might have been from that. Um, just kind of starting out, talking about playing with form and getting to the more intense stuff. I can't remember. I don't have the book at hand. It also reminds me of um, humor and music. So Leonard Bernstein, the composer, did a series of concerts for young people, which was recorded as a TV series. And one of the episodes is about humor and music. And he goes through, you know, there's like humor in lyrics and things like that. But then there's jokes you can play musically, and he goes through a whole host of examples. Some of them are like really obvious, and still not quite at the uh, still not quite at the core. And he says as much. There's one piece I forget what it was called. You can, I think you can find the program on YouTube, but there's one piece where the title of it is something about like a marching band or a parade or something like that. And at one point, the orchestra members get up and cheer like they're the audience in the grandstand or something like that. <laughs> so it's kind of a musical joke, but it's not quite a, that that deeper thing. It plays with the form, but it isn't quite what he's getting at. And he goes through a, a whole list of examples, which since I watched this a long- a while ago and I half remember it it would be a disservice but that's an interesting conversation about when music is funny like in that yeah. in that way in playing yeah. with the form i can think of another example which is called this is a trent reznor song and obviously this is more direct parody but it very much plays with the form
0: that rings a bell. Yeah, yeah. That, that, if, if if it's like if it's like roughly twenty years old or something, then then I probably did see it back in the or hear it I'll, back. In I'll the post
2: day. it. I'll post it in the chat and for the show notes.
0: It's sort of a deconstruction,
2: right? And then lyrically, he's describing why this is a Trent Reznor song and, and things like that. I think Weird style parodies are probably another great example of the music being being funny for a musical reason. Jim, you there?
1: Uh, yeah, I am. I am here, but that. You asking me if I was there is the only thing I've understood in this whole conversation.
2: Fantastic. Do you have anything interesting to s- anything else interesting to say
1: uh, about the thing you were talking about? Because I don't know what that was.
2: Yeah, if you want to redo this part no, no, of the this conversation, is this
1: is this is like I'm actually really into this. Like there hasn't been a disaster episode of Topic Lords yet. Fantastic. And so this could be the first. <laughs> I'm I'm happy. Uh, John B, do you want to just monologue about flicky likes for a couple of minutes and then i can listen to it later because i want to hear about flicky likes
2: um i'd rather save that for another time maybe i'll have some more examples
1: okay that's that's (laughs) fine all right uh (laughs) uh maybe we should call it like the episode is long enough now that we can uh we can end this one i think jp if this is something that you want where can people find you on the internet I don't want people to find me on the
0: internet, honestly. I respect I that. I have no web presence. I have never used the internet.
1: Good for you. A- apparently, neither is my computer. Uh, John, <laughs> if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet?
2: Um, you can find me at so on Twitter. You can find me at so. Topic Lords Discord. You might find out that we're mutuals on different servers there. If you do, feel free to stalk me on those. You might find my face in Hypnospace Outlaw for some reason. Somehow I ended up in there. Uh, that just came out. The physical copies are out from Fan Gamer, so there's another plug. I had nothing to do with it except Jay asked for a picture, and I said sure. Way back when that was still just a mote in his eye. Did I use that idiom right? <laughs> <laughs> that's where you can find me.
1: I think a mote in your eye is like an irritation, but that's that that works too. Like you got to yeah. work to get it out.
2: Yeah, exactly. He had to work to get that out. So, (laughs) there you go.
1: Thanks so much for being on. Sure thing.
2: Thanks for having me back. Glad I could be here for history.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed Lords. This episode was edited by Esper Quinn, who can also edit your episode if you contact them on Twitter. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com and you can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode!